British opinion has hardened hugely against Harry and Meghan and in favour of the monarchy. Harry has had a, religi- a, a religious conversion. He's been converted to this. The woman, the beautiful who, woman, will do that to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, to well, you. well, exactly. He's got a priestess. <laughs> the, the, the religion has got a priestess, which yes. is Megan. But she believes in this yes. stuff. What does he do? He founds with the Invictus Games yes. for yes. badly injured soldiers. Do you know what Invictus means? Not victim. It means, isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? It means not victim. It means unconquered. It's it's from the Latin to conquer. He really doesn't see the. He doesn't see it. I'm sure he. I'm sure he managed to go through six years at Eton and not learn a single word of Latin. (laughs) I mean, I think that they're doing profound damage to themselves. Mm. He's an exile. Um, He's become, to use, I think, an appropriate word because he's been treacherous. He has become a traitor. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our fantastic and returning guest today is one of this country's most prominent historians, Dr. David Starkey. Welcome back to Trigonometry. Thank you. It's so good to have you on the show. Uh, We've got lots to talk about, particularly the Royals. We want to get your take on that, and I'm sure it's going to be very interesting. 50 minutes is Uh, not enough. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to stretch it out then, David. Uh, But before we do, uh, one of the things I'm pleased to see is that you've uh, recovered. So if there was any recovery needed uh, from the attempted cancellation, you're back. You are speaking at Oxford Union shortly. Uh, You've been welcomed back into the fold of society. Is Is that broadly speaking? Right. I'm not sure that I was ever driven out of the fold of society. There's this strange little world, this tiny world of smug, self-satisfied people centering on places like The Guardian, <laughs> the BBC, some university common rooms, certain charities, the civil service that think they are the world. They are, of course, not. They're a little group of self-satisfied people. Now, those self-satisfied people can do terrible, terrible things because they control employment. Uh, In many ways, they control, they used to control, BBC had virtually a monopoly on the dissemination of information. The one thing they didn't control is real society, save in the, so far as people are frightened. And yes, there was fear. There was fear in, not me, I've never been frightened. Um, I lost only one semi-friend. One. (laughs) And he was the kind of person who buys friends. To give you an idea of the quality of the man, I once visited his garden. I complimented him on the white foxgloves. He said, yes, yesterday I had 10,000 planted. That (laughs) tells you all you need to know. Somebody who buys foxgloves and friends. Real friends were absolutely stalwart. What they were hesitant about doing, a lot of them, was putting head above parapet. Mm. There was much support behind this. Oh, yes, absolutely disgraceful, shocking. Um, not actually much muscle. But then I decided 
that no one has ever shut me up before. Many have tried, beginning with my mother. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that explains a lot. It says so much. My, my, mo my, my mother, my, as always, mothers get you half right. She said, yeah. your tongue will be the ruin of you. Well, it very nearly was. Um, it's, also, it's also been the making of me. And it's this, again, we've seen the same thing with Clarkson. Um, you know, those of us who walk tightropes can fall. Mm. Those of us who parade on knife edges can get cut. Um, but above all, you need a degree of courage. You need a degree of honest self-judgment, mm -hmm. admitting you were a fool yourself um, is a start. But equally, once in my sense, in my case, one of outraged injustice that an outraged sense of justice, that, that the sheer disproportion. And of course, above all, the fact I wasn't employed. You know, if I depended on university salary, I would have been lost. Is it why J.K. Rowling can get away with it? She's too rich to cancel. Um, the retired, have you noticed the most outspoken academics are the retired academics? You look now at, for example, History Reclaimed, David Abulafia, uh, Robert Frost. Retirement, it's not only given them a new lease of life, it's given them a new lease of freedom. You can't be cancelled. You can't, or rather, the whole, as it were, enforcement machinery, dismissal, professional restriction and whatever doesn't apply. It's those who are in employment. It's those, those are the ones who are so vulnerable. And then again, as, we were, as we've been talking about, um, so that's, that's, the, that, that's the fact that the constrictions apply in a very, very uneven way. I mean, I think, I think again, you look at so many of those who are making uh, uh, making the running uh, in the in the revival, because there's undoubtedly it's very serious revival of free speech. Many of many of them are the elderly. They're those out, somewhat outside, those standing away. From... He's talking about us, mate. <laughs> <laughs> the elderly. <laughs> no, but you, so you're you're of a different kind. You are the world of the new media. Mm. But then equally, the, the the new media were precisely one of the means by which the worst aspects right, through. Twitter and whatever mm. of of cancellation was enforced. Mm -hmm. um, the, 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 in other words, we're, we're in a world of margins, aren't we? Uh, in which mass society enforces rules, but equally there are so many bits that you fall off the edge in most interesting ways. I mean, I've always argued that the uh, if you wanted to do really big pseudo history stuff on freedom in the West, you'd said that freedom is a little bit like the mammals in the age of the dinosaurs, these tiny little creatures scurrying around between these things. And in the West, above all, I think it's the fact that you have the war between church and state, between papacy and empire, and there's this little bit of space. And the world that we're in now with these gigantic forces 
Oddly enough, it leaves little bits of space. And people like us, the, the smart, clever little mammals, can run around these gigantic, snorting, posturing dinosaurs <laughs> and, uh, and laugh at them. And all occasionally, sort of, you know, you're underneath, so you can do horrible <laughs> things to their tender bits. <laughs> but David, we, we need those people. We need of the people on the knife descent, edge. Descent is, descent is essential. All progress. I mean, all new ideas depend on heresy. The, the heretic is the key figure. The, the person who says, to pick a crass and crude example, no, uh, no, the, 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 the sun does not revolve around the earth. You, somebody has got to break the obvious. Somebody has got to say what everybody thinks is untrue. And again, my dear mother came in very useful. I come from a background of minority religion, Quakerism. And uh, my mother was, in many ways, a profoundly conventional woman in one sense, over things like morality and whatever. But equally, uh, she had a remarkably powerful sense that Public opinion is often wrong. Mm. Just because everybody says something, she would say, is not necessarily right. I was also brought up, um, she was fiercely opposed to corporal punishment. So she made, and dear me, talk about making a rod for her own back. She thought the right way to deal with a child is to reason with them. Can you imagine trying to reason with me? <laughs> as a three -year -old? I mean, she, she nearly broke herself. Yeah. Uh, but it, it gave me that sense that finally the truth is there, that it can be argued for, it can be defended. Again, I was immensely, bearing in mind my age, I'm born in 45, I was immensely fortunate, both in my primary school and more, more particularly in my little grammar school, uh, 300, boys' grammar, um, which had been taken over by an astonishing reforming headmaster. I think he was one of the youngest in the country, he was only in his early 30s, a man called James Boys, and he'd essentially abolished Corporal punishment. I was going to say capital punishment. <laughs> that, 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 that had been the previous decade. But uh, he essentially abolished corporal punishment, and the school operated as far as it could on a principle of argument and reason. Now that's, um, of course, you always find yourself coming up against the fact that people may say that they believe in reason, but when it touches <laughs> things really tightly, uh, my mother again, um, uh, her favourite word, uh, she was such a bundle of contradiction, was, you know, oh, it's a matter of principle. And this little boy learned very quickly that a principle is something that people believe in so strongly that they won't listen to reason on the subject. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, at Cambridge with my, um, with, with with my great teacher, with Geoffrey Elton, always, you know, oh, you know, um, I've got the view, uh, you know, you should be contemptuous of your elders, harsh to your equals, and generous to those below you. Apply that to me, which I did, and at which point <laughs> then came. <laughs> Surprisingly, you know, suddenly, you know, you've rebelled against your intellectual father. But uh, I've, uh, I've tried, I've tried not to fall into that trap. I'm sure I. Saw David, and speaking of dissent, uh, I mean, one of the things that uh, I found, and I, I don't use this word lightly, but genuinely shocking, was to do with the royal family, which is one of the reasons we wanted to have you back. Mm -hmm. But at the tail end of last year, where you had this incident with Ngozi Fulani, yeah. and I just, I, it just seemed to me that we've, we've become deranged. 
in the way that we talk about these things. I mean, that, the way that story was covered showed me that that bubble that you talked about earlier, I mean, their view of reality is so distorted now that they are so bought into the idea that the royal family is just one racist enterprise, etc., etc. What did you make of all that? I, I, was, I was profoundly shocked by the way in which the entire case was reported. I mean, I was listening that evening uh, when, when, when Fulani went public. Uh, she was interviewed on virtually every channel. I was in, <laughs> in, I was in a car when my friend Ian Dale interviewed her. Mm. I have never heard a more shameful, and I say this and I'm deeply fond of Ian, I've never heard a more shameful and sycophantic piece of broadcasting in my life that there was simply this prostration before this woman who clearly had to be the voice of absolute truth because of who she was, what she was, what colour she was. And I thought that was shameful. Uh, it was clear that it was the story was a complex one. Um, I was again profoundly shocked at the response of the household of the Prince of Wales mm. immediately, mm. implicitly accusing his godmother, Lady Susan Hussey, of racism. That, I thought, was shocking too. Um, the, the dialogue was a very strange one, but then, so when you actually looked at uh, Ngozi Fulani, uh, was she? Um, here was a woman with uh, an extraordinary conflation of names, Hussey, New Africa. Hussey was a church, uh, gather as a member of a church with large numbers of, 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 of African members of the congregation. She was clearly profoundly puzzled by t t t the, the union of two wildly different tribal names. Uh, here was a woman uh, who was wearing, uh, what well, come on, say, it was almost a carnival version. Of African dress, it really was. I mean, it was a sort of it was a sort of outfit that what we were in the old days a Victorian travelling circus would have used to exhibit an African queen. She was wearing as much leopard skin print as you normally only find on a bar stool in Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> and, and is it is it is it any wonder that a woman who travelled with the Queen to Africa had seen the real thing? was completely puzzled. Okay, the interrogation probably went too far. But, but here again, if I, 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 do you know what? I could hear myself as Susan Hussey. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I really could. You have the sense of, I'm puzzled by you. Yes. Mm. I don't understand you. I don't understand what you're claiming to be. Uh, and of course, you know. The whole game uh, was played to, um, as it were, get maximum maximum traction for again this 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 view that British society, particularly upper class British society, is fundamentally racist. That that she was challenging this woman's right to be British, etc., etc., etc. But isn't it striking? Fulani goes out of her way to emphasize not her British identity, but her Pan-African identity, which again, uh, very many black commentators were saying is something they find profoundly problematic, mm. because of course it places skin color above culture. 
which you know, again gets us into uh, to, 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 associate, to associate identity with skin color mm-hmm. surely is racist. So you know, the whole we we are in a cul-de-sac of, of absurdities and paradoxes. David, the thing that really struck me, and you use your own example, and I think about this in that context as well, is the the amount of bad faith that was so obvious in that engagement that was not critically analyzed by the media at all. I mean, if you and I were to have a conversation, as as we might have done when we first met, and you said to me, oh, you're foreign, where are you from? Or And I gave you some obf- obfuscatory answer, and you went, oh, no, but where are you really from? I'd be like, I know what David's asking. He's asking where I was born. Why don't I just tell him, and then we can have a conversation about that, and that's how human beings connect. Mm-hmm. It was very clear from this engagement that this woman was deliberately making this into a big deal, and nobody had the balls to stand up and say it. That's right. Um, uh, it again. I mean, I had a remarkable conversation. I wish I could remember his name. It was at a history reclaimed party, and he was from, I think, I think in the Balkans. Um, he. Completely anglicised to to you know to a level that I would say for the fact that he used he used an original version of his surname I would have had no awareness whatever and what we we were then talking about what was I supposed to call him mm. um, and I wanted to call him English because he seemed to me to have everything that I regard as English in the sense of the use of language, the sensibility, the culture. And he was saying, no, I can't be. I have to be British. And I found myself, it was really odd, I found myself arguing that uh, finally Englishness has become a matter of culture. It is, it is in the same way that you, despite you're uh, spelling Constantine with a K, <laughs> and, 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 and whatever, in so many ways are almost as English as you. Um, and I think we're, go- we're going to... I th- see, I think this is the way forward. Mm. Um, I, I, I have got this, this, this sense. Again, England increasingly is becoming a place of the mind in exactly the same way that Rome was. And for all the same sorts of reasons, a dominant culture which uh, was the center of a vast empire, which itself is being transformed ethnically precisely because of the empire coming back mm-hmm. home and so on. Uh, but, but the idea of Romanness Survived as 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 an as a as a as a mental and cultural identity, uh, and one of course that was capable of being revived hundreds, thousand years after Rome had fallen. I wonder if we might be going that so way. This, I'm wondering, but it seems to me that that rather than just sticking to the brief. It's worth exploring that thought, but to return because you want to talk about you want to talk well, about we, that. Well, we were wanting to um, talk about the royalty, the royal family, and I, and I think my question and the question that I really want to ask you before we get into anything to do with Harry, etc., is why does a royal family matter? Why is it so important to this country, David? It is the one continuous thread in our history. Um, I try to explain to people why. Uh, there, are t- there are several ways in which you can understand it, but essentially, and it's the, it is this utter paradox of Eng- it's English history. It's it's not British history. It's English history. It's this utter paradox of English history that all the things that we think of 
as our freedoms, the uh, security of property, the uh, forms of representative government, uh, the uh, rigorous enforcement of law, mm. all happen under monarchy are finally a creation of it, and it is their guarantor. In other words, we are that most paradoxical of things. We are a royal republic. <laughs> As, in fact, um, Prince Charles, uh, King Charles very clearly understood uh, in what I thought was a remarkably good speech, uh, which he gave the sort of invented, like so much of the accession, the invented speech when he met both houses of parliament in Westminster Hall um, and emphasized the fact we are a parliamentary monarchy. Now, many people think that that's a sort of creation of democracy in the 20th century. It's not. The, it goes back to the very latest, the beginning of the 14th century. In 1308, in a ritual that will shortly be reenacted, that's the coronation and the taking of the coronation oath. In 1308, Edward II was forced to swear an oath that he would Obey and enforce the laws that shall be chosen by my people. Shall be chosen. That's, it is unique in the history of the English monarchy. In other words, what I want, what I think is important about the, the monarchy is that it shows that freedom can be historically rooted, that it's part of a tradition that it is not a product of the 19th century, that it is not a product of democracy, that it is not a product of revolution, that it's not a product of a bill of rights, although all of those things at certain points enter into the story. The thing that finally guarantees freedom in Britain, extraordinarily, isn't the revolution of the 17th century, it is the restoration of a monarchy. And this is the wonderful paradox of English history. Do you think that... Now, that in other words, I'm saying our history is the monarchy. That's mm. why I wrote a book called Crown and Country, which is a history of England through the monarchy. It is the institution which reflects us to ourselves. Now, what the relationship of that is to Charles and Harry and the soap opera of all of that <laughs> is anybody's guess. But I'm giving you the high intellectual view yes. of monarchy. Yes. And I think it's one that is, I mean, I'm being desperately serious about it. Because remember, every, particularly this whole new laborish, new leftish uh, university college constitution unit view of political freedom and whatever, that it's all to do with the enlightenment, that it's all all to do with written constitutions, that it's all to do with bills of right and sort of doing what more or less a newly enfranchised Eastern European country would set up as its structure of government. I will always gently try to remind people that the average age of a written constitution is about 10 years. That's, they last no longer. The, 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 you know, the fact that, for example, America was able to create a constitution which has endured is utterly unique. There is no other example um, that, that, that compares with that. And of course, it has an enormous downside, as we can actually see at the moment. Um, you, you cement a rigidity, uh, you, you get you know, over the right to bear arms and whatever, you get, you get ex you know, absurd doctrinal rigidity. Whereas a living and constantly revivifying tradition, such as we have or had and should have, mm. I think is... 
the right way to handle human relations. David, you talked about England being this idea. Do you think we can have England without the monarchy? Do you think it could exist as a republic, or is it going? To, or are those two things incompatible? It, ha it was tried, wasn't it? It was mm. tried in the 17th century. That's exactly what happened. We did abolish the monarchy, and we lasted for... 21 years mm. and clamoured to have it back. <laughs> I mean, repeatedly, uh, the obvious thing was for Cromwell to have... Uh, there was a clamour to make Cromwell king. Mm. Um, the, the, uh, the sense was that the, that the norm couldn't work without the monarchy. Now, I suspect that's probably no longer true. I think that the, the monarchy has become so much of a formality mm. uh, that you could, I'm afraid, very easily see it vanish. I think it would be a profound error. I think if we did do what we did again in the 17th century, we would discover our absolute vulnerability. We have a, all the things you and I uh, 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 talk about the, the the world of woke, the, the the awful cesspit of race relations, or whatever. These are forces which press very, very heavily on the whole of, of the Western polity. It seems to me your only resource against these things is finally tradition. Um, and I'm now arguing against my younger self. Um, it may be just that I'm getting old. It may just be that my mind is no longer as sharp as it used to be. But I don't think reason is any defense against these horrors. I really don't. I mean, the, in fact, the, the horrors, in my view, uh, demonstrably arise from the reason gone wrong, the, the, uh, the, ver the, you know, the very fact that, that uh, so much of it's called critical theory. Mm. It's, it's a kind of reason become cancerous. It's, it's a whole series of intellectual movements that, that, as it were, have turned against the metabolism of, of the mind and, and, and of society. And finally, the anchor against them is our traditions of decency, of good sense, of the way in which we do things. And this is what is so shocking, for example, places like Oxbridge, and particularly my own University of Cambridge. Once upon a time, the sheer notion of collegiality, the sheer notion of the relationship between teacher and taught, would have the sheer reverence for learning itself would have acted as a as, as a barrier and a bulwark. But the deliberate attack on these traditions, the destruction within my own lifetime of a sense of collegiality, the absence any longer of common dining, of, of dons who live in, of unmarried dons who give their whole lives to their institution, it means that the barriers of tradition have largely vanished. There is nothing but reason, self-advancement and whatever, and we can see how totally inadequate they are. You know, you go back to my own case, um, a college, for a mere moment of thinking, oh, this is a bit of a problem, throws somebody who has been involved in it at a very high level and doing a great deal of good for it for 50-odd years, simply aside like a soiled tissue. Now, that represents, in my view, moral corruption. That represents the abandonment of decency 
the things on which we really depend. Reason, reason, reason I'm sorry isn't much of a protection. Look at the French Revolution itself mm. and the, 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 the absurdity of the, the goddess of reason who's, who's some half-naked actress um, from, from the Comédie Française performing on the altar of Notre Dame. Um, uh, it's, it's why Burke you know, pushes reason to one side. Reason can very easily go mad. It's a rootedness of behavior and a rootedness of political institutions. And one of the things that most worries me about what's happening in Britain is the increasing contempt for our political process, which in many ways I share. The, uh, the parliament, which used to be the, uh, a thing of genuine, okay, everybody laughs at parliament and individual parliamentarians, but broadly that sense of, of pride in the thing seems to me to have worn dangerously, dangerously thin. Um, and that worries me because, you know, does that, are you familiar with that extraordinary story of Churchill at the beginning of the First World War? He takes a young man late at night they're wandering around the Palace of Westminster, as indeed I was last week, the small hours, and they wander into the chamber of the House of Commons. Dark, few lights flickering, I suppose maybe electricity, maybe gas at that point. And Churchill invites this young man to look. He says, pointing to the empty House of Commons, this is why we're going to win. Now, would anybody be confident about doing that now. That confidence in the tradition of, we were talking about the Oxford Union, that which of course models its debating, like the Cambridge Union, on Parliament. Does anybody any longer have confidence that what goes on in Parliament represents a genuine discussion by debate? And I think this is an utter, utter tragedy. Um, and it leaves us profoundly vulnerable. That, that without that security of tradition, you have very little. We talk about tradition and we talk about being profoundly vulnerable. To me, the royal family are profoundly vulnerable without Queen Elizabeth. Because even people who identify as Republicans, who would openly question or even mock the monarchy, practically everyone I speak to in this country had the utmost respect for our Queen. But the moment that she passed away, it seems that they're up for debate and it seems that they can be challenged and they can be... I mean, I, do you know what? I think you reflect um, that the very last phase of the Queen's reign, okay. um, that this, you know, this unchallenged respect uh, was very much a product of, I think, really only post I thought the last 10 years or so. I mean, if you actually think at the deeply challenged unrespect that was directed at the Queen at Diana's death. Mm. When, when you, you actually had Blair seeing himself as having to protect the monarchy against itself. She was accused of being cruel, unfeeling, you know, not sharing the, uh, the marvellous openness of Princess Diana. I mean, the, um, no, I, th I think that, that I, what I was surprised by was the remarkable 
warmth of the reception given to King Charles. I was actually very impressed by the confidence with which, which he acted at the beginning of the reign. Um, I've been less impressed by, of course, the current hoo-ha. <laughs> um, uh, but then equally, if you look at opinion polls, British opinion has hardened hugely against Harry and Meghan and in favour of the monarchy. And, the, the, and what, again, of course, is striking is, well, it's not even striking, um, the, 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 the patterns of support, if you want to call them sides, they correspond to that other great, great divide in British life. Uh, in general, uh, you will find Harry and Meghan supporters were invariably remain voters. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, <laughs> monarchists are die-hard monarchists are invariably Invariably leave voters. I mean, there's, there's a, it's a very, very, it's a very. Now, the, the, the overlap between the groups, two groups, in other words, not, not, not every, not every uh, Remainer is a supporter of Harry and Meghan, but all supporters of Harry and Meghan are are are, are, are on the Remain side and so on. Um, but what what is striking about those people is, of course, the diehard supporters of Harry and Meghan, by definition, are fundamentally anti-monarchist. Um, and uh, the kind of source, the kind of groups that they're appealing to, particularly the, you know, the, the that extraordinary trio of people who appeared in in the Netflix series. You know, when when we, we were talking about um, the the, uh, the uh, Susan Hussey uh, and the uh, and and the the, the Negozi Fulani business, the the business when the 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 uh, the, the, the race, the essential alleged essential racism of the monarchy was. Being being, being discussed. Look at who they were. David Olusoga, um, uh, Kehinde Andrews, uh, and Afwa Hirsch. Every one of them a profound anti-monarchist. Mm. Um, mm. so, so, you, so you think it's, it's an anti-monarchy anti thing, but the damage they're doing to the royal family is... I'm not is sure. I'm not, I really don't think so. I mean, I think that they're doing profound damage to themselves. Mm. I mean, the, uh, I mean, what's, I mean, the Harry is an exile. He's an exile. Um, he's become, to use, a, I think, an appropriate word, because he's been treacherous. He has become a traitor. Um, uh, I mean, what I've said bef uh, earlier on, it seems to me, Harry has undergone, uh, we, we talk, don't we, increasingly about um, uh, uh, woke, about critical race theory as either religions or heresies. Mm -hmm. Harry has had a, relig a, a religious conversion. He's been converted to this. The, woman the beautiful who's... woman will do that to <laughs> you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I said a beautiful woman will do that to well, you. Well, but she believes in this stuff. Yes. Yeah. And, and so what so what you have with Harry, and it's only with poor Harry because he's not terribly bright and he doesn't really understand all of this. No. It's a very partial conversion. Mm. But you see this poor man straddling between two worldviews, mm. the worldviews of a not terribly bright hooray Henry went in the army, which traditionally, rec you know, traditionally rescues them, gives mm. them a purpose, mm -hmm. gives them a sense of direction, and he behaved admirably. Mm -hmm. um, he also did things that were really very striking. And again, one wonders now quite how much he was responsible. I mean, what does he do? He founds what I thought 
was something astonishing, which was the Invictus Games yes. Yes. for badly injured soldiers. Do you know what Invictus means? No. Not victim. Wow. It means, yeah. isn't it interesting? Wow. Isn't yeah. it interesting? It means not victim. It means unconquered. It's it's from the Latin to conquer. He really the, doesn't see it. He doesn't see it. I'm, I'm, sure I'm sure he managed to go through six years at Eton and not learn a single word of Latin. <laughs> I think, I think you know, I'm, I'm afraid that really, that really, that really is the level of density. But, but it is, you see, you got the point instantly. Right. Yeah. What he has done, he created a set of games which are designed to say to these these men who've been I mean you look I, I was born with club feet I find I've got a very awkward relationship with disability mm. I can't look at those men without wanting to cry and you look at their courage their refusal to be victims um, okay they're the kind of men who express themselves normally simply physically but here they are saying right I may be shot up but I can still do I can still you know, pull a weight, I can still I can still row, I can still do whatever, refusing to be victims. And here is this man who creates a non-victims games, mm. playing the perpetual role of victim, but about things that are so petty, so trivial, so absurd. And I mean it is, you know, it's always been the problem with monarchy. But on the one hand you've got an institution which you know it is it is freighted with twelve hundred years. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what it must feel like. I love, I've, I've got a, a sort of inkling, what it must be like to sit in that chair, that chair made for Edward I with the conquest of Scotland in form of the stone beneath it. Um, to sit in that chair, in that building that is built a century earlier the specific purpose of a coronation with a text which hasn't changed very much since the coronation of Edgar in the ninth century. That, that extraordinary, in, in front of all the great medieval kings arrayed behind you in that great ark, a kind of audience of your ancestors as well as an audience of your subjects. And that institution finishes up in producing Harry. You know, the, the sense of the weight on the one hand and the feather froth on the other, but David, that's the nature of humanity. Well, this is what I was going to say. Give us a historical perspective, because... I thought I'd been doing that all the time. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and very well, of course, as always. But, but on this particular issue, I mean, primogeniture, the idea that the eldest son inherits titles mm -hmm. and lands and so on, and the, the rest get nothing... It's quite a long-running oh, thing oh, in human oh, history. Oh, Not, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, touché, 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 touché. As a lad born in the council house, I yeah. do feel. That, I, I, I do feel. I do feel. That, I do. I do sympathise with, with the grinding poverty of Nottingham Cottage. You know, um, you know, its rateable value would have paid. I would have thought for my entire education. A very <laughs> successful counter strike there, David. Uh, I'm wounded deeply uh, by 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 the. Of your, of your response, but you know what I mean. I do. We, yeah. Throughout history, you have had these spares, as he's called uh -huh. himself, right? And that is that—that that is the way that it's been. But is it? How common is what's happening now, where the spare, so to speak, seizes the microphone, uh, whether we like it or not? He's got a huge book deal that millions and millions and people, if not a billion people around the world, are going to read at least bits of it. And this is a guy who is. 
you know, getting his story out, quote unquote, and uh, maybe not destroying the royal family, as you say. I think you're right. The injustice of the way that he's behaving is actually galvanizing a lot of support for, for the monarchy. But he is tarnishing them. That he's slinging mud, at least. No, oh, you're certainly trying to. He's yes. trying to. Yeah, yeah. How is this common? Has this happened before? Ooh, Have yes. we seen I mean, this? Yeah, yeah. In fact, the problem of spare brothers is so acute that the uh, the uh, the Ottomans, the 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 Ottoman Empire, the Sublime Port, that's say the rulers of Turkey, mm. had a very simple way of dealing with brothers. You succeed as sultan. You invite your brothers to a wonderful feast. The following morning, they are strangled with a silken cord. That's what the Ottoman Empire did. I mean, that would solve the Harry problem. <laughs> it, would solve, it would solve the Harry problem. And we have we had a... <laughs> I, it might not, actually, because the books might already be written. He's got a full yeah, book here. <laughs> so they might still be released. Be a posthumous publication. Do you, think do you think there's a clause? Do you think there's an activation clause when I'm hanged with a silken, when I'm strangled with a silken cord? And again, you, re you look repeatedly in English history when you were fighting about real things, not about, you know, my bedroom was smaller. Mm. And you look, for example, at, or indeed, uh, being pushed into a dog bowl. Uh, well, the uh, younger brother of, uh, of Edward IV, the Duke of Clarence, was pushed into a butt of Malmsey wine and drowned. Mm. I mean, and it was the, the relationship between the three brothers of the House of York, uh, between Edward, uh, between George, and between Richard, is a kind of, you know, on steroids version of what seems to be the case with, with, with Harry. It's frustrated ambition, it's anger at being overlooked. It's, there's even a struggle about wives. Hmm. Of course there is. Um, um, uh, and you would expect that to be the case. Um, one, one, of the, one of the great successes of the English monarchy for much of its history was it didn't have too many spare children. Mm. I mean, one of the great problems, actually, was, was King Edward III. King Edward III, I forget how many sons, it's something like eight. Um, and he actually boasts in Parliament about, you know, my marvellous <laughs> proclivity um, at generating sons. But of course, that leads pretty well directly to the Wars of the Roses, that you've got too many rival royal branches. And what happens when uh, one of them fails or you, you, you get a, an, a, a, an absence of the usual kingly qualities? You've got all too many other branches ready, you know, ready to step up and, and to claim the throne. Again, one of the reasons that the the monarchy survives all the torments of the 17th century is that until the very end, until 1688, the royal house doesn't split. Um, that, that younger sons do not, as it were, take up the line of opposition. Normally that's what happens. Again, in 1688, uh, in 1689, the solution to the great crisis um, of the um, of the Stuart monarchy was that you had daughters who were prepared to rebel against their father. David, what I'm getting at, though, this is, I mean, fascinating what you're saying, but what I'm getting at is it seems to me, and again, give us a historical perspective because you, you're much more knowledgeable, of course, in this area, is, is it not unprecedented for the spare to have this level of 
I mean, you want to call it power or influence or this? No, 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 this no. I mean, again, well, Harry, Harry has carried out the equivalent of a modern rebellion. Mm. I mean, what, what the Duke, what, right. what, 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 the, what the man I was talking about, the one who finishes up in a butt of Malmsey wine, what he does, he twice rebels against his brother. And, in, and, and unlike, unlike Harry, um, who is, you know, merely slinging mud mm. um, at William. He's slinging he actually, arrows. Uh, well, more than that, he actually once, he drives his elder brother from the throne twice right um and is finally bumped off when it's perfectly clear that he's dabbling with another coup uh, and then what happens with the yet the younger brother still richard um he murders his ne- famously murders his nephews you you get this perpetual the, the crown is is seductive <laughs> of course, of course, it's seductive. You look at that thing. You look. You look at how it holds you. You look at those those extraordinary images of the queen wearing the crown, either the coronation or particularly at the state opening of Parliament, the the, the imperial state crown. That mass of diamond. You, as the lights come up, and I'm watching that, you can see why people fight. Die, kill, murder for the thing. And I mean, Harry. <sighs> Harry has that. He also, of course, has the uh, extraordinary sense of white knighthood with his mother and, and, and assumed with Meghan. But all he's doing really is using modern devices. You know, HarperCollins is the equivalent of um, going into alliance with the Lancastrians against the Yorkists. You know, you're, you're deploying modern means to get even. Mm. Mm. David, isn't this just what happens when you live a life without purpose? No. I mean, many people, on the contrary, uh, the struggles were much more vicious when the monarch had a profound purpose. It's just called, it's called, hum- it's called humanity, brothers quarrel. Human nature. It's called human nature, br- brothers quarrel. Um, in many ways, it's highly creative thing, the comp- you know, male competition. Mm. Um, no, I, do, I don't think it's... A, I mean, in Harry's case, it is, but equally... You can see, I mean, one of the paradoxes, I mean, let's now just quickly turn the thing around. The, the whole notion of, uh, of King Charles is saying, oh, we want to slim down monarchy. Now, in one sense, that is exactly what might have dealt with Harry. You know, mm. say, right, you're the younger son, uh, you uh, enjoy uh, rights and royal privileges until Denmark shows exactly the case that's happened. Queen Margaret has decided that her younger son and his children shall, as it were, be disroyaled because there is now a secure succession with her elder son, right? And you could imagine that erected into a rule mm. that until the succession is secure, you, know, you will retain everything and whatever. But once two, three children, sorry, we give you dignity, we give you a pension, we give you uh, every encouragement to go off and do things, but no longer royal. The trouble is, isn't it? that we've got a very different view of monarchy. Have you noticed these extraordinary ancient people, even older than me, <laughs> like the Duke of Kent and Princess Alexandra? These people in their 80s. I mean, the Duke of Kent looks as though he's going, going to drop dead any moment. But he's being wheeled out the whole of the time because, of course, all sorts of things have royal patronage. The one of the, You were talking about 
not having a purpose. One of the things that the monarchy has become in the 20th century is the essential patron of voluntary activity. Mm. Organization after organization rejoices in royal patronage and the royals do something. Now, that needs a lot of people. Mm. You look at the number of engagements of the Princess Anne or of the Queen or of King Charles. Now, you need spares. Mm. You need hyperspares. <laughs> you need pre-generation spares. But of course, you need those who are prepared for that subordinate role. And um, again, one just marvels at the problems of Harry's education. Apparently, it took Meghan to instruct him that monarchy was hierarchical. Can you imagine the spelling exercise? <laughs> no, the I comes before the E, uh, yeah, and there's an R there, yeah, and hierarchy. Um, uh, but uh, you can imagine it would take a very, very long time. But how have you been a royal prince? How have you been in the army? How have you been at Eton? Eton is not exactly a democratic institution no. and not understood there's a thing called hierarchy. David, do you not think this speaks to very much the issue that we've discussed with you in the past and we speak often about on the show? I think the unwillingness to recognize the existence, whether you like it or not, the existence of hierarchy is part of this new worldview which seeks to make everybody equal yes. and that's the solution as if that ever would happen as if that would yeah, ever as work. As I always say no sillier statement has ever been uttered than we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are born free and equal. It is the silliest statement. I mean even women aren't born free and equal. Um, let me let me free myself <laughs> immediately uh, for, 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 from the charge of misogyny. A baby is born. The, a human baby is the most dependent creature in existence. Um, it is it is absolutely incapable of sustaining itself not for a week or two, not for a month or two, but for years. Now that seems to me to be a fundamental fact about human beings and. The profound inequality of humankind. And these are the things that we should be ready. Unequal in strength, unequal in strength, unequal in mental strength, unequal in endurance, unequal in, in every quality you can think of. Um, which, of course, is why we're so wonderful. Ants are standardized. If we want a standardized world, we need to be turned into ants, which is exactly, of course, what... what um, what, what um, uh, uh, regimes like communism and to an extent Nazism endeavoured to do, when you what Chinese communism in particular, its aspiration is to turn you into, into, into a human ant mm -hmm. in, in a functioning ant heap. The, the wonderful thing about being human is precisely the diversity, the separateness. Um, mm. um, uh, uh, but you see, I think the great curse, I think the great curse of the West is, in fact, the beginning of the Declaration of Independence. I think the the uh, the thing that's held up. You're going to get some hate mail <laughs> out no, no, of this. No, no, no. I'm, no, I'm, I'm fully aware. I think the I'm opening. Joking, the, no, no, I'm sure we have I a am. big American audience who, no, by the way, love you. So no, no, they'll be but, interested but to I'm hear your point. Really, really serious. Yeah. The uh, I mean, I think Jefferson is the disaster of the founding fathers. This is the language of the extreme enlightenment. This is the language 
you know, that leads to the catastrophe in France. Um, and what is very striking is, of course, that those notions of equality figure nowhere in the Constitution at all. When you come to draw the serious document mm. that gives America its extraordinary tensile strength, this brilliant, brilliant balancing between federalism and, and uh, uh, in other words, the, the power of the states and the creation of, of an acceptable machinery of, of, of federal, of central government, astonishing. You know, the, the, the way in which the, the Senate is it becomes this kind of tensile bond, this idea of, of the equal representation of states, whatever their size, whatever their population. It, it, is an ex, it is an extraordinary document. But it is merely a it is merely a very lightly amended version of the 18th century English constitution. This is, this is exactly what John Adams says. Mm. The, interestingly enough, it's Tom Paine who also says to Washington, I think it's his, his, his second, third letter, I lose track of these things, mm. I'm not an American historian, that uh, it says to Washington, you know, that, that we began with, you know, the, the allegedly, I don't think Washington never did, begin, begin with, the, with the aspiration to have a real revolution and what we finish up instead is merely a very lightly amended version of the English Constitution. John Adams, again, that point about royal republic, I think in the 1760s, said that it's unquestionable, this is George III, it's unquestionable that England is a republic. It just happens to have a crowned head. It's ruled by law. The king is under law, um, uh, 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 and so on. So I think the disaster is that opening phrase, which is very, very effectively buried, that notion of equality. It's very effectively buried until Lincoln and the Gettysburg speech, you know, that we are a nation founded on new principles, the principle of equality. Tell me where is equality in 19th century America? Tell me where is equality in, you know, in the America of the Gilded Age? The quality of America is precisely its wild inequality. Mm. It's astonishing, chaotic creativity held together by this miracle of words. And is this a story and, and, as old as time again, and David? It, and, it go, and, and then, of course, the catastrophe is that it's propagated uh, by Eleanor Roosevelt, principally through the, the machinery of, the 40, of 1945, the United Nations, and particularly the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. And I, I mean, have you, um, uh, have you, in, uh, I never know how you pronounce his name. Um, what is the chap with, with the African sounding name, the wonderful Dane, who's written about freedom of speech. Nachangama, what, what I, I don't know him. Uh, you, you really ought, I'm sorry, my memory is so bad. You ought to have him on the show. Mm. But what he points out, what he shows is that the, uh, the whole campaign for the limitation of freedom of speech to protect the right of minorities has been driven using the Universal Declaration of Human Rights by the Soviets. In other words, all the, all the notions about discrimination and whatever, as we know, have been used to undo freedom of speech um, uh, 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 
actually derive from uh, the negotiations in the, in, in the 50s and 60s um, uh, to translate the Universal Declaration into, uh, from merely a declaration into a binding statement with the Soviet Union satellites coming up with this whole idea that we've got to protect minorities. The protection of minorities is the thing that has always been used to destroy, free, uh, to destroy the freedoms and to destroy bills of rights. Remember, the original purpose of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is to protect the individual against the state. The moment you say that the essential purpose of human rights is to protect minorities against majorities, you then have to turn the state into the machinery that protects the minority against the majority. You invert Nachangama, isn't it? Um, uh, you invert the process. And it is this worship of this silly word equality, forcing people into something that they're not. This is what I want to get at with you, because this is a struggle as old as time, right? Who has how much power based on what and who gets what and how do we divide the assets that generate that are generated in society? And humanity has struggled for millennia to answer that question. And communism and Nazism and all these other things were attempts to re-engineer humanity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What, 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 what have we learned through our human history about those attempts? I mean, I know... I think the answer is nothing. Yes. The fact that we keep on having to repeat them would yes. suggest to me merely as a matter of empirical observation. Um, in many ways, we've learned enormous amounts. The, uh, we accidentally, I would argue, we, remember, the notion of representative government that we have now, which is pretty, works pretty well, we stumbled on accidentally in Britain, England. It really doesn't, it, you don't find anything quite like it elsewhere. And it... It was, there was this, again, sorry, I'm, I'm answering the question very arsiversi, but there are no great conservative thinkers, I would argue. Conservatism doesn't lend itself to thought. Mm. In fact, I don't think thinking is a very conservative activity. Um, <laughs> That's good. That's the thing that's going to piss a lot of people off. That's the one. Mind. I really don't think. I don't. You think like lobbing grenades I, in every I, I, direction, well, don't I, you? It's David? very important. <laughs> one should particularly lob grenades at oneself on one's own Quite. side yeah. and see if they stand it. I don't think thinking is a conservative activity. What is is a slow growth of a tradition of a way of doing things. And the the idea of representative government in England, the idea of government grounded in law and the limitations of law. There's no one individual. There's there's no there's no there's not there's not even well the sort of Magna Carta, but Magna Carta is is, is a kind of tiny germ. What then happens is a whole series of things come together. Particular attitude to law. Particular kings come along. Uh, one of the ways in which you develop the idea most strongly, paradoxically, is because the English are addicted to fighting. They <laughs> love the kings love war, and they discover oddly enough that you can actually raise taxation if you ask nicely, um, you know, that you actually get consent for it. So it's actually the very strong kings who build up this machinery and so on. But it's, what you do, you create, you create a political tradition. And 
what we've got so badly wrong in the West mm -hmm. is to think that this political tradition, which gives us the right to do what we are doing now, mm -hmm. that gives us, modern, even the right is the wrong word, give, we just think we're entitled to do it. We occasionally talk about that as a right when we want to invest it with solemnity. In the same way, we tend to, th we tend to call things that we think we ought to have universal human rights. Has there ever been a sillier phrase? You know, the, the, mm. the, uh, uh, again, Jeremy Bentham describes universal rights as nonsense on stilts. You can only have a right with an enforcing body, with an enforcing body of law. But the, 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 the thing that, that we need to understand is that a particular way of doing things arose. In other words, it's rooted in a particular society. That be, if you actually look at belief in what we can loosely call representative law-bound government, it's profoundly shallow outside the Anglosphere. It really is. Um, in other words, these things are not universal. These things are not logically deducible. These things do not arise from a fixed human nature. They arise from specific localized historical experience. Now, this, of course, cuts absolutely against what is virtually universally assumed. Um, I'm saying it quite deliberately. As I said, I think the, the great disaster of the 20th century is the 1945 settlement. I think we can see in retrospect that the 1945 settlement is as catastrophic as that at the end of the First World War. Tell us more. Well, this is what I've been trying to explain to you. That it seems to me that it it that with with the creation of a notion of universal human rights mm. and you and a universe, therefore a universal man. That is, remember, if you've got universal human rights, that assumes there's a thing called a universal man. Mm. That is again so far from human experience. But was it such a bad idea after seeing the horrors of World War One and then the hor horrors of the Holocaust to go? Maybe all humans should have a right to life, lack of torture. You know, not have to have medical procedures enforced on them. Was that such a terrible idea? Uh, of course not. And in one sense, you can see. Of course, you can see its immediate, profound attractiveness. Mm. Mm. The trouble is, you root it in the wrong argument. Um, that, in other words, the, the, the idea of human uh, of, of human universality. I mean, again, let's let's just go back um, to how this idea arose. One common notion about how this idea of how the idea of, of human universality arose, and Tom Holland advances mm. this very strongly in Dominion, is that it arises essentially through Pauline Christianity. I don't know whether you're familiar with with uh, it's it's particularly the epistle to the Galatians. And there what Paul says is, and it's really worth repeating, that there is neither, listen carefully, there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond, that slave, nor free, man nor woman in Christ. In other words, that Christ abolishes human distinction. But that doesn't mean that 
human distinction is abolished. No, nobody assumed that Christianity, until woke came along, was about abolishing the difference between man and woman. And <laughs> what it's saying is that there is, in a particular form of religion and spirituality, a transcendence of human difference. Now, I think that the only way in which we can all get on is, and again, so I am taking this right back to the beginning of our conversation, is recognizing human diversity and difference. And the last way you can do that is if you start producing universalized doctrines. You, I can understand, right, I can understand, and, and now I'm thinking aloud, I can understand, as it were, the negative, thou shalt not do. Yes. That seems, but that's not a universal human value. Mm. I can understand the negative. In the same way, I don't believe at all in do as you would be done by. Mm. I do believe don't do what you wouldn't have done to you. Mm. They, they, in other words, the golden rule seems to me to be it works much better in the negative than in the positive. Because, of course, do as you would be done by means I can enforce my values on you Quite, if you bother yeah. to think about it. So we're back to the Ten Commandments, David. We're, 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 again, we're back to your point about how do we cope with the extraordinary diversity of human beings. And it seems to me that, yes, in one sense, we've learned nothing in the abstract. In other ways, I think we've learned profoundly the development of traditions of language, of culture, of thought, of manners, the behavioral patterns of human beings have changed, have improved in many ways. I think, and this again is a reflection of age, uh, I think my sense is that we've sort of gone a little bit off the top in our own civilization, maybe rather a lot off the top, that the the cultivation of a civilization is, uh, and it's, I make it sound like a plant, and I think it is. Uh, in other words, you can overcrop, you can overprune, you can overfertilize. It goes right back to the beginning of our civilization, which is the invention of the English language, um, which is Chaucer. And Chaucer has this astonishing phrase. Chaucer's, again, and an extraordinary man. Uh, he's a product of this strange island on the fringe of Europe, um, which didn't really have a language. You're at the stage you've killed the native language of, of Anglo-Saxon. It's got completely mixed up with the, the language of an, of an alien ruling class, French. And Chaucer, in some ways, not quite single-handed, of course not, but shapes it into a language. We forget, you know, English is the most extraordinary recent of languages. Mm. English really is only, well, it's after the beginning of Parliament. Um, that oath that I was talking about of, of, of Edward II in 1308, that's sworn in Latin and French. But Chaucer, towards the end of that century, begins to formulate English, but he formulates it against a background of Latin and against a background of Italian and his travels in Italy. And one of the things, of course, that's shaping this world is the world of Rome, 
that dead great civilization, which is still a living civilization through its books and its literature and its buildings, which Chaucer encounters, particularly in Italy. And in one of his poems, he writes about his experience of reading one of the most important surviving works of Cicero, the dream of Scipio, in which Cicero reflects on the greatness of Rome and Roman history. And it's very wonderful. He goes to sleep, he's bored stiff, and he dreams not of a parliament, not of a senate of human beings, but of birds all making love to each other. It's, it's a wonderful poem. And then there's a couplet in which he's reflecting on this newly discovered world of, of, of Roman literature and whatever. And the phrase goes as follows. Just in the same way, and the point that I made about a civilization as a kind of culture, as a kind of, as a kind of agriculture, just he says in the same way that from the old earth each year there springs new corn, so from old books new learning comes. And that's, it's that extra, and again it's what, what Burke is talking about when he talks about society as a as a cross-generational contract, when he talks about it as if it is a contract, it's a contract between those, those, those who are living, those who are dead, and those who are yet to be born. And it's this fertilization across time. And that's, that's why the American Revolution is a success and the French Revolution is a catastrophe. Mm -hmm. The French Revolution tries to restart time. It d tries to do what the Chinese, what the Russian does. The American Revolution effectively is just a group of Englishmen deciding actually they can run their affairs better. <laughs> David, we've got to wrap up shortly, but you raise, I think, within that a question that a lot of people actually deeply, I think, deep down want to hear an answer to, which is you talk about our civilization, you talk about it as a plant. Is it dying? Well, I think we're doing our best to kill it. I mean, remember, fundamentally, a civilization depends on one generation handing on to the next. And many of my generation decided they didn't want to do that. And quite a lot of yours decide they didn't want to receive it. And modernism, to a very significant extent, began as destruction. We really do need to understand this. I mean, the, you look at what we call modern art, which begins with Marcel Duchamp. Duchamp did not think he was inventing art. Duchamp, you know, he's the person with the urinal, you know, uh, which, which, which is then labeled La Fontaine and all the and, 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 and with a fictitious signal, uh, signature uh, in, in New York. Marcel Duchamp does not think he's inventing a new art. Duchamp is trying to destroy art. He says Rembrandt should be used as ironing boards. He says absolutely specifically, I am an anarchist in the same way as an anarchist. I am absolutely opposed to art. All that stuff, the, 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 the art of surrealism and whatever, and, and, and Dadaism, is only reinvented as art 
in the Warhol Circle in New York in the 1960s, and above all, by a, a group of money-grubbing money -grubbing Germans in Italy who persuade Duchamp to re, um, uh, reissue his various works. And it's only in the 1960s that you decide this stuff is art. Um, uh, uh, again, the modern movement in architecture is a deliberate attempt at destroying the previous patterns of artistic endeavor, which, again, I was thinking this today, being driven in from Islington to the, to, 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 uh, to the wonders of King's Cross uh, and St. Pancras to catch the trains that, you know, get me here. Um, and I went, my taxi took me down through um, the squares of Islington, um, uh, crossed over uh, Richmond Avenue, Hemingford Road, and whatever, and then it turned towards Caledonian Road. And these elegant terraces and pretty villas suddenly turn into block after block of hideous, decaying, litter-strewn, paint-peeling, pissed-upon council flats. And you look at a sense of a civilization having committed visual suicide. The sheer, unredeemed, hideous ugliness. And again, so much of the city, the preening, preening swish, my cock's bigger than your skyscraper, vanity of it. There really is, this, you look at that vis, deliberate visual chaos. You contrast it with the instinctive elegance and, I'm sounding like Prince Charles, I apologize, <laughs> King Charles, elegance and human scale. And there is, again, when, when, when people talk about, everybody laughs when they say we've got to build a beautiful, but you look at the sheer ugliness of so much modern housing, the sheer ugliness of the spaces we create, the absolute indifference to the human scale, to beauty, to, to even elementary convenience. And it is this extraordinary paradox that you know, we've created levels of, of health, of security, of comfort, and at the same time, how can I put this bluntly, shat upon a tradition of civility. But it's above all, in other words, We've forgotten that things really do have to be transmitted, that, 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 that a culture is a, is a, is a delicate thing. I mean, again, all, the, all you know, the, the Bloom stuff about the closing of the American mind, about, this is true, that, that if, if generations are not taught this, you, know, you, don't, you don't absorb Shakespeare by accident. I mean, and again, it's very, <laughs> but, 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 but look, look at the role in um, the book that seems to me to be the prophecy of what's happening to us is Brave New World. Mm. Uh, Brave New World, that society which, which Huxley sees and to an extent experiences in 20s California, um, in which the only person who reads Shakespeare is the savage. Um, that world of absolute valuelessness there is a risk. There is a risk. And the more we decide that the Western tradition is a disaster, that whiteness is a disaster, then I'm afraid we are 
signing our own death warrant. You see, there is a very... We were, we, we, we were talking quite lightly about um, cancel culture. You know, Andrew Doyle's written brilliantly on this, um, about cancel culture and all the rest of it um, being quasi-religious. Mm. But there is an example of a civilization which got religion very badly, and a religion that was profoundly opposed to its central values. It's called the Roman Empire and Christianity. And the classic account of the fall of Rome, that's to say uh, Gibbon, sees the absorption of Christianity, which is a religion which in you know, Rome embraced power, it embraced dignity, it embraced honor. Christianity is religion which embraces submission, unity, forgiveness. Meekness. Mm. Meekness. As, as Nietzsche says, the religion of the slave. Who knows? <laughs> and on that note, David, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, before we do our questions for locals, we always ask the same question to end our interviews, which is, what's the one thing we're not talking about as a society that we really should be? I think this discussion has covered absolutely everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, it went in wildly different directions from what I was expecting. And I'm sorry, I, I probably wandered into far too many strange corners, but it does seem important to say these things. Um, it is. I mean, I am aware, and again, it is terrible age, one becomes very aware of fragility. You become particularly aware when, like me, you're childless. I never thought I would say that, and certainly never say it publicly. But the only thing that someone like me could have as a legacy, and again, isn't it awful, one starts thinking of these things, is that process of transmission. There used to be the notion of, in a sense, master handing on to pupil. It's very difficult to preserve. And wherever you look, really, that's what's needed. You, you, you... The trouble is that we t we've tended to see it as um, strangling creativity. We've again, we were joking before, weren't we? That that you need rebellion. You were saying, but you also need order. In some ways, I suppose it is right to burn heretics. <laughs> there is this awful paradox. Um, We've got a pie ready just outside for you, David. Fire ready outside, fire ready outside. It was getting a little warm in here. <laughs> David, uh, if I may pay you a compliment before we let you go. Um, I think in terms of passing things on, this is quite the discussion in which you've been able to do that and previous conversations we've had with you. Uh, we have a lot of young people who watch the show. Some of them are even as young as being in their 40s. Um, and so, <laughs> some are even younger than you. Some are even younger than me. Very difficult to believe. No, but I, I think... Uh, as we've seen with the growth of our channel, you we, we joked earlier about when you first came on the show, it was in a dingy, smelly pub, and look at us now, we're doing very well. <laughs> I think there's a hunger out there in the world. I'm sure, no, I'm sure, sure, sure there is. But of course, there is a conspiracy not to feed that hunger. Well, there we're conspiring to feed it. There's a conspiracy to deliberately starve it, or to do what's even worse, to feed it rubbish food. Yes. Yeah. But... 
We run a small restaurant here that focuses on high-quality game, and you've been that today. <laughs> David, uh, absolute pleasure. I recommend everybody check out your YouTube channel where you put out a lot of great stuff. We're going to ask you a couple of questions that are paying supporters have submitted from locals. Uh, but for now, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for being with us. We will see you very soon with another brilliant episode like this one, or or show. All of them go out at 7 p.m. UK time. And for those of you who like your trigonometry on the go, it's also available as a podcast. Take care and see you soon, guys. Are civilizations always destined to fall apart? Could a sufficient degree of robustness ever be built into one?